traditional Maori food, a bar named for criminals, and an island for prisoners. This week, we're in Wellington, New Zealand. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Wellington, New Zealand is the capital of New Zealand, but it's also a hub of gastronomy. They have amazing craft beer, a great wine region, and restaurants that feature lots of unique local produce. Later on in the podcast, we'll talk to one of the purveyors of some of the top-notch dishes in Wellington. Restaurateur Asher Boot. So, let's eat. What to eat? Hey, you gonna finish that? On Destination Eat Drink. There's links to all the places I talk about in this episode of Destination Eat Drink at DestinationEatDrink.com. And there's more great places to eat, drink, and fun things to do right there on the website, complete with pictures. And check it out often. New places are going up all the time. Wellington has a rich culinary culture, and you can get everything from cheap street food to world-class fine dining. And best of all, a lot of Wellington restaurants rely on local produce for their dishes. If you love seafood, you should search out menus featuring pawa. Pawa is a mollusk or a sea snail, and it's a prized delicacy in New Zealand. You'll often see it grilled and served with garlic, but one of the most popular ways to make pawa is to mince it finely, make a fritter, much like the clam cakes you'll see served at seafood shacks all over New England. The best place to get a pawa fritter is just up the coast from Wellington, on Evans Bay at the Chocolate Fish Cafe. Not only do they make a great power fritter, but it's right on the water. So it's a great place to kick back, even if you don't want power. More upscale for power lovers is the power ravioli at Logan Brown, right on Cuba Street. It's served as an appetizer and is a bit pricey at $14 New Zealand for two ravioli. But if you love power, this is definitely a dish to seek out. Power fishing is tightly regulated in New Zealand. Overfishing in the past has decimated the population, so the government stepped in and they're now doing their best to bring back the power population. They do it by making sure that minimum size restrictions are obeyed and limiting catch numbers. And divers who are looking to harvest power must free dive. That means no scuba gear is allowed when you're looking for power. And the fisheries department has the power to arrest, fine, and even imprison violators of the power harvest laws. Recently, a group of prison inmates who were out on work release were caught poaching power. It turns out the men responsible who were supposed to be rehabilitating the prisoners were actually teaching them how to break the law and how to poach power. Another group of men was recently caught taking 600 power from a shallow bed. That's 60 times the daily individual limit. Those guys face a quarter million dollar fine and five years in prison. So you can see New Zealand is serious about power. 
Malaysian street food is also very popular in Wellington. The first Malaysian people came to Wellington over 100 years ago, but the population really increased in 1969 when riots broke out in Malaysia targeting ethnic Chinese Malaysians. And some of these oppressed ethnic Chinese fled Malaysia and settled in New Zealand. And today there's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Malaysian street food. It's fresh, tasty, cheap, and makes a great option when you're on the go. Uh, the dish to try is laksa, the coconut curry soup. And in Wellington, there's lots and lots of places to get laksa, but two of the best are KK Malaysian and Little Penyang. KK Malaysian imports their coconut milk and spices for an authentic laksa, while Little Penyang imports their spices from Malaysia and grinds them into their own secret blend. But for me, my favorite laksa in Wellington is at Auntie Mina's. Auntie Mina has a great laksa, and I like it because you can get it with dumplings or wontons. And in the back at Auntie Mina's, there's longer communal tables. So if you're Feeling particularly sociable, you can strike up a conversation with a neighboring Kiwi at Auntie Mina's. We'll talk more about the Wellington food scene later on in the show when I interview Asher Boot. He's an executive chef and owner of several excellent Wellington restaurants. Want to drink? I'll have another on Destination Eat Drink. If you subscribe to the Destination Eat Drink podcast, you'll get it directly onto your phone, your computer, or it'll drop straight into your email every week. It's available at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or at radiomisfits.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review it. There's been a craft beer explosion in Wellington. Every bar, it seems, has an interesting set of taps, and most of them are from New Zealand. My favorite place is Rogue and Vagabond. This is police speak for the crime of possessing tools with the intent of breaking and entering. So you might have a certain stereotype when you hear of a bar called Rogue and Vagabond, but trust me, these guys are serious about beer and they know their stuff. I like a tap called The Beast which is brewed locally in Wellington by TRO Brewing Company, specifically for the folks at Rogue and Vagabond. It's a little sweet, a little fruity, not overly so, and it packs a wallop so it comes in a snifter glass. The other two things that I really like about Rogue and Vagabond, first, they have this little nice outdoor space where you can relax with your beer and food, and there's a tiny playground next door. So families will often come in the early evening and let the kids run around while the parents enjoy a pint. The second thing R&V has going for them is their sense of humor. On their menu, they have a vegetarian pizza called Meat is Murder and another pie called Armageddon Time and another called Never Mind the Bullocks. So extra points to them for creative naming of their uh, pies at Rogue and Vagabond. A lot of guidebooks will tell you to seek out hotel concierge and taxi drivers and ask them about the best places to go in a city. I tend not to do that. Not that these folks don't know stuff, but generally people like hotel concierge and uh, taxi drivers, 
they work with mostly tourists. So they're going to tell you about tourist spots to go to. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but I generally like to go to some more unusual, out of the way, or undiscovered places. And that's why when I go into a city, I like to ask bartenders for recommendations. Bartenders tend to move around a lot, so they've been everywhere, and they also like going out. So if you ask a bartender where to go, generally they can steer you to a cool place. We lucked out when we arrived in Wellington. One of the first places we went to was a little place on Cuba Street called Ambra. They build themselves as a Venetian Bacari, which is sort of an Italian tapas joint. And we had a really nice Aperol spritz and polenta fries, which were outstanding, by the way. And after that, I asked the bartender for other places to go in Wellington. And he recommended a place called Nightflower. I tapped it into my phone and saved the location for later. And later that night, we went out to Nightflower. And I'm really glad I did because Nightflower, it's not in any guidebook. It's, you can't even find it on Yelp, but it's totally worth seeking out. It's a little speakeasy on the second floor of a nondescript office building just off of Cuba Street. Don't stereotype, but, you know, the bartender had a handlebar mustache and was wearing suspenders. So this is what you'd expect at a speakeasy, I would think. You go inside, dark walls, velvet couches, and a great soundtrack of jazz, blues, light pop from the 40s and 50s. Nightflower has no drink menu. So they encourage you to challenge the bar staff. Uh, my recommendation is the gin and tonic. They make their own tonic right there at Nightflower. Things to do and places to see. I don't know. What do you want to do? On Destination Eat Drink. If you have a question or a comment about anything you've heard on the podcast, you can hit me up on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink or on Twitter at Eat Destination or on the DestinationEatDrink.com website. Click on the About and Contact tabs. My favorite thing to do in Wellington is to take the cable car from Wellington to the top at the hillside suburb of Kelburn. You should do this on the first very nice day you have. The view up top at Kelburn is gorgeous, but only buy a one-way ticket because after you've snapped your selfie at the top of the hill looking back onto the harbor and the city, you want to walk the paved path that gently winds through the botanic garden going downhill. That's the way to visit the Botanic Garden. You don't want to go the other way and start at the bottom and walk your way up. Walking down is much easier. They have wonderful gardens sprinkled throughout the area, and it's really very peaceful and beautiful and a great spot to take pictures. There's a playground if you're bringing kids along with you. And this year is the 150th anniversary of the Wellington Botanic Garden, so they have lots of events scheduled all year around the celebration. Wellington is a harbor town, and the waterfront is a great place to stroll and to hang out. There's lots of restaurants along the waterfront, including the Karaka Cafe, where they serve Maori dishes. The Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand, and they have a rich culinary tradition. Kumara is a sweet potato the Maori originally brought with them to New Zealand from Polynesia, and it's often cooked with meat and other vegetables in a hangi, which is a traditional Maori method of cooking in a pit 
that's filled with hot stones. It's kind of hard to find a real hangi because it's this entire um, it's this entire event. You have to dig out the pit. You have to make the fire that heats the stone, and then you have to do a long cooking process in the hangi. So it's an all-day affair. You can find some Maori tours that will arrange one, but at Karaka Cafe, they do their own take on hangi. And Karaka Cafe also has beanbag chairs outside, so you can linger over your hangi with a nice beverage. They're open for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, and I really recommend a Karaka Cafe on the waterfront. The waterfront's also where you might stumble upon these large concrete blocks with quotes carved into them. These quotes are about the city of Wellington, and they're written by famous authors. 23 blocks make up the Wellington Writers Walk, and you can get a link to a map of all the blocks on my website, but I think half the fun is wandering around Wellington, especially the harbor area, and seeing how many of these concrete blocks you can just stumble upon by chance. One that you might look for specifically is the short excerpt from The Wind Blows by Kate Mansfield. Ms. Mansfield was born in Wellington and moved to Europe after becoming disillusioned with the racist treatment of the Maori people. And her bohemian lifestyle and bisexual orientation caused a scandal, and Catherine Mansfield ended up dying at the young age of 35 of tuberculosis, never having returned to New Zealand. But now she has been embraced by New Zealanders as one of the great writers of the country. And Catherine Mansfield's home is now a museum in Wellington. You can visit it. There's also a great steel sculpture of her in Midland Park, where they put quotes from her writing all around her dress. New Zealand in general, and Wellington specifically, are very proud of their female heroes. Wellington was the first Western country to have women's suffrage. It was decades before the United States and even England allowed women's suffrage. But Kate Shepard of New Zealand was an early suffragette, and she was largely responsible for women gaining the right to vote in New Zealand. In fact, Kate Shepard is so beloved that her picture is on the $10 Kiwi note. She spent years gathering thousands and thousands and thousands of signatures on a petition aimed at women's civil rights. And you can see pieces of that original petition along with a statue of Ms. Shepard in the National Library in Wellington, which also serves as the National Archive. It's not far from the government buildings right there in downtown Wellington. Wellington is the capital of New Zealand, of course, and the district, the government district, celebrates Kate Shepard by having her silhouette in full Victorian garb on the Green Street crossing signals in the city. Tips and inside information on Destination Eat Drink. If you'd like to learn more about my fiction writing, you can do so at the website DestinationEatDrink.com. Click on the About tab for info about my novel Truffle Hunt and my collection of short stories, That Bird. There's lots and lots of great day trips from Wellington. One of them is to Matu Somes Island. The island is just a short ferry ride from Wellington, and it's really fun to go out into the harbor and see Wellington get smaller and smaller behind you. During World War I, uh, Matu Somes held what is so-called enemy aliens on quarantine barracks on the island. 
Uh, this is a nice way of saying enemy aliens. It's a nice way of saying that uh, hundreds of German nationals, many of whom had families and businesses in New Zealand and had lived there for a long time, were being held prisoner on the island. You can see some of the barracks on the island, they're still standing, and the hospital where sick prisoners were treated is now a field center for the Department of Conservation. During World War II, New Zealand was on high alert after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and later the bombing of Darwin in Australia. So anti-aircraft guns were mounted at the top of the Matu Somes Island, but they never had to be used. The Imperial Japanese military never tried to invade. But if you hike to the top of the island, you can still see the gun encampments and command posts. Today, the island is a wildlife preserve, and it's only 68 acres. You can easily see it in an afternoon. If you hike around the trails on the other side of the island, there's a lighthouse that makes a great lookout point back to Wellington. This is a great spot to take a picture. You'll also likely see some wildlife on the island. It is a wildlife refuge after all, but unless you stay overnight, you most likely will not see the most famous residents of the island. They are the blue penguins. Uh, these guys go out early in the morning to hunt in the water for food. They don't stay on the island. And even if you do stay overnight, there's no guarantee that you'll see these guys. Take a note, there's no facilities on the island except for the one toilet near the ferry landing. Everything you need for your day at the island you have to bring in. So bring water, bring sunscreen, bring a hat, anything else you might need too, like snacks. And all the garbage and everything that you bring in, you have to bring out with you. There are no trash cans on the island. Lots of people go to New Zealand in order to see sights from the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. Unfortunately, most of those sets were torn down after the filming of the movies, but one spot, Hobbiton, still stands. And you can take a tour of Hobbiton, and it's definitely worth it. You should do it. But Hobbiton is not close to Wellington. It's closer to Auckland, which is to say it's still two and a half hours away. But if you want to make Hobbiton part of your trip, you should do it from Auckland, not Wellington, where it's over six hours to get there. If you'd like more info about Hobbiton, check out episode eight of the Destination Eat Drink podcast. A better choice for uh, Hobbit sightings is to climb Mount Victoria in Wellington. This is where the get off the road scene was filmed, where Frodo and the gang hide from the Black Rider. The exact coordinates for where the scene was filmed are available at DestinationEatDrink.com. And even if you're not a ringer, Mount Victoria is still a great hike. It pays off with incredible views. Nearby Martinborough is also a great day trip. It's a respected wine region in New Zealand, and the train from Welly only takes about an hour to get to Martinborough. From there, you can rent a bike at Green Jersey Cycles or book one of their guided bike tours. And the nice thing about Wellington and Martinborough, um, the Martinborough wine region, is that it's relatively flat as opposed to Auckland, where the wine region is very hilly. So pedaling is relatively easy in Martinborough. And it's fun to bike from winery to winery and enjoy a cellar door. Cellar door is Kiwi speak for wine tastings. But just remember, after all those cellar doors, you got to pedal back. So plan accordingly when you're taking a bike trip through Martinborough.
Well, my guest today is Asher Boot. I'm really glad to have Asher on the program today because he is an owner and executive chef of several very well uh, respected restaurants in Wellington, Hillside Kitchen and Cellar, The Ramen Shop, Tina Corey Bistro, and welcome to the show, Asher. Thank you for having me. Sure. So um, here in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, it's winter, but in New Zealand right now, it's summer, which is your busy season, I would imagine, right? Yeah, very much. So maybe a little less for us being based in, in the city of Wellington, um, where, uh, where where the government is based. So uh, actually, a lot of people leave town um, during summer and go to the more holiday spots and, and things like that. So we're just getting back into normal business after quite a quiet January Um which is normal. Everyone leaves town and goes to the beach. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was in Wellington during January and I noticed a lot of places do close up uh, for several weeks between Christmas and uh, the middle of January. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it is. It's, it's a chance to get out of the city and it's, it's generally when people take their, their holidays, big family holidays over the summer period. And um, I mean, we've got amazing um, beaches and national parks and camping areas in New Zealand. And, and that's where everyone sort of heads to. It's, it's out, outdoors time rather than indoors time. Perfect. So I, I want to talk about your restaurants um, because they're each offer so much uh, different things. But first, let me ask you this. When you're in the kitchen, are you a music guy or a no music guy? I'm a no music guy, which, which annoys my staff. Nothing. Um, no, end. Um, no, I, I like the, the, the calm, um, uh, repetition in a kitchen. Um, you know, whether it's maison place or whether it's during service time, it's, it's being focused on what you're doing and as as fewer di distractions as possible. I'm quite quiet in the kitchen as well. I try to encourage less of the yelly, screamy chef and, and more of the, um, calm talking chef. So no Gordon Ramsay in your kitchen. <laughs> no, no, that's not allowed. So at uh, Tina Cora Bistro, you guys do what you call French-inspired New Zealand cuisine. What what exactly does that mean? I mean, I think everyone knows sort of bistro classics and, and that style of cuisine. And really, our focus is on um, regional ingredients and the terroir um, of the food here in New Zealand. So it's it's taking those classic sort of dishes that, good French cookery technique that um, I was classically trained, so I picked up a lot of that, but focusing on our ingredients here um, and letting them inspire the dish, much in the same way that so many of those French dishes would have evolved naturally in their, in their own regions of France. Um, yeah, we'll take reference points of what's growing here, whether, whether it be the amazing lamb that we get in the lower North Island or the, the seafood around or um, the vegetables that grow in this region. What are some of those uh, indigenous New Zealand ingredients that you like to use? Yes, I go foraging quite a lot. Um, and one of the sort of staples that we use is a, a leaf um, from a tree called kawakawa. Um, it's related to the kava plant that you might have heard of in the, um, in the islands, the Pacific Islands. Uh, it has a, an amazing flavor profile, uh, something between basil and Szechuan pepper um, with all sorts of things going on in between. It's, it's a pretty incredible ingredient. Uh, yeah. So it's got sweet and a spicy profile to it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. It's really interesting. It's, yeah, if you can imagine, I'll describe basil as a soft, sweetish sort of herb. Um, and then, yeah, you get a bit of, a bit of spice and also a, a touch of the, the numbing sort of effect that you get from a Szechuan spice as well. 
um, and perhaps some cinnamon profile. It's 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 really unique. It's hard to kind of compare to anything else. That sounds so interesting. I would love to try that. Um, you yeah. talked about foraging. I was going to talk about that when we talked about your restaurant, Hillside Kitchen. But talk about foraging a little bit because I'll, I'll share a quick story from me. I used to be a gelato maker back in the day. And yep. one of my favorite things to do was... Um, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, there was an industrial park, kind of a wasteland, but they put blackberry bushes um, between a lot of the buildings as kind of a barrier. And every August I would go down there and pick gallons of fresh, wild blackberries competing with the birds to try and get those. And that was one of the biggest joys of making the gelato was finding these things that were out in the wild. So uh, talk about foraging and and what that means and how you do, how you go about it. Yeah. I mean, we're in peak blackberry season at the moment. So yeah, I've I've collected about 20 kilo in the last couple of weeks, which is what 40 odd pounds of, uh, of blackberries. Um, I, I, it's about connection to food for me is one of the major things. And, and if you're actually seeing the, the environment that a plant um, grows in, you can have a real connection to that plant and understand it um, straight away. Quality is another thing. You know, you're picking the, the exact items that you want uh, for the dish that you're preparing. So being able to really be selective, I guess, in terms of what you're getting is a major thing. Um Sort of process-wise, I mean, it's you need knowledge. Knowledge is obviously really important um, with foraging because, you know, there are things out there that can be dangerous and, and you've got to be careful about what you're picking, especially when we get into mushroom season um, is a big one, so knowing what you're about. And I, I just think it's an extension of, of being a chef, of really understanding your ingredients, of, of, you know, knowing them literally from the ground up, how they grow, what sort of areas they establish in, um, and does that make sense in the dish that you're using? Um, you know, being able to take seaweed and, and put it into a bouillabaisse type dish make, just makes so much sense. Oh, that sounds wonderful. What are some of the other things that you like to forage besides the seaweed? You mentioned blackberries. You mentioned the kava, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, what yeah. else do you like to forage? Being, being around Wellington, Wellington is um, surrounded by sea. So, um, so many seaweeds that are available and coastal herbs as well. Um, we've got a native spinach in New Zealand um, that really absorbs the salinity around the ocean. So, it's sort of seasoned in itself, which is great. Um, there's uh, yeah, different native berries and, and bits and pieces. And then there's lots of sort of trees that came over in uh, colonial times, things like elderflower. Um, is really special um, being able to get elderflower and elderberry when that comes through um, we we do every year mushrooms we're really lucky in terms of um, bullets so uh, things like pushini and birch bullet come up around the city um, or further afield um, that we get into perfect oh that sounds oh it sounds great i'm getting hungry thinking about it um we mentioned hillside kitchen and cellar this is such a interesting and unique restaurant because if I'm not mistaken, you were open for a while there, and then you kind of made a switch to an all-vegetarian menu. What was the impetus for doing that? Uh, progression, I think, is the the key there. Um, when I opened that restaurant, we were sort of when gastronomy was a very big thing, and and a lot of chefs were sort of taking uh, fine dining uh, knowledge and just making it a bit more approachable to customers um i'd come back from working in in sweden and scandinavia during the sort of new nordic food movement um and so what we were doing when we first opened was quite different at the time and and after three years i kind of noticed that a lot of other restaurants were moving in the same direction and 
how do you stay ahead of the game, I guess, and how do you progress? And and there's obviously changing um, dining habits. You know, it is a business at the end of the day, and so you try to look ahead to what trends um, you think are coming and what direction um, you think diners are going to take in terms of their their approach to looking at restaurants. We've always been very strong on the ethical point of view uh, with the food at Hillside, and yeah, it was a way we could progress the restaurant, keep moving forward. Um, also gave us the opportunity when you decide to do something that's a bit different, you can almost um, push your idea a bit further. So we went to a tasting menu only at night. So you can it's a five or seven course degustation menu and it means we can be very, very, very focused on the food that we offer um, and almost increase the level of what we can offer. And what, what do you feel like, uh, how, how long has it been all vegetarian, by the way, at Hillside Kitchen? Uh, so it was September last year. Okay. Um, so maybe about six months or so. Six months. And what, what do you feel like the feedback has been so far? It's been absolutely incredible. Uh, it really has. Um, the, we, we lost barely any clientele. We lost some because people want to eat meat and that's fine. Uh, but we've definitely gained more. Um, and some of the recognition that we've uh, been getting for making the move and just the food we're putting out purely as the food, not considering whether it's vegetarian or not, um, ha- has been garnering some some really good attention. So, yeah, really, really happy with what we've done and the way that it's been embraced. And I think it's so interesting because you, you said not just because it's vegetarian, and that's the thing. When you look at the food that you're serving there, you don't necessarily first think, oh, this is a vegetarian restaurant. I mean, vegetarian restaurant has certain connotations to it, it I does. think. Absolutely. And you don't, when you look at your menu, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking this is good, high quality food, not necessarily just vegetarian. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's the focus for us. And it's why we kind of use the term meatless more than anything else, rather than saying it's a vegetarian or vegan restaurant. It was to take away um, from being classed, I guess, in that category of, um, of fake meat and, and tofu in a restaurant. Um, where, uh, you know, it's, for lack of a better term, it's avant-garde or, or whatever you want to call it, what we're doing. It's, it's modern cuisine, um, and it's, it's based on skill and technique and quality of ingredients. Um, it's just that we use a particular range of ingredients. And I think from, from traveling myself, I've found that cities like Wellington, where you have maybe a younger and a very educated uh, populace tends to embrace the vegetarian style menu more than say other places might. I think of places like Austin, Texas, where I lived for a while, um, or Portland, Oregon, where there's a lot of vegetarian restaurants. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we have, it's a really interesting city, um, Wellington. Yes, you've got a, a large student population, you've got a large government department population, and then you've got a huge artistic community as well. So We've got really interesting groups of people that kind of make up the city, and and it's always been a city that's embraced uh, things that are a bit different as long as they're of quality. So yeah, it's it's definitely the right city to do it. That's great. Um, the one restaurant we haven't talked about yet is the ramen shop. Uh, you guys yeah. do the ramen, of course, and um, the the thing that I always think about with ramen is. It has to have good broth to start with. You can't have subpar broth and put high-quality ingredients on top of it and hope to have successful uh, ramen. So what's the secret to having good... Oh, and we should mention, by the way, you also do a vegetarian broth at uh, the ramen shop in addition to a pork-based broth. Um, What's the secret to a good broth? Time. 
um, time and quality of ingredients, really. Um, so we're, we're really particular about, uh, for our pork broth and for our chicken broth, um, the quality of bones that we get. Um, we're very specific about using backbones from, from pork, from pig, uh, because they're the collagen and cartilage content uh, that helps give a richness um, to the broth. We actually don't add as much fat as some people. Um, we want a cleaner, um, more pure broth and, and using free-range pigs um, for the, the bone and the meat that we use. Uh, they're not as high a fat content anyway. Um, but yeah, time is the other one. Uh, a pork broth has to be moving the whole time that it's cooking as well. It's really important that the bones are being moved around the whole time and that's um, pulling away some of the cartilage and the collagen so it can break down and, and give that sticky feel to a, to a broth. Uh, the quality of ingredients is is key it, it really is um, and it takes time you know some people will say you know you've got to cook it for 13 hours sometimes it's 10 hours sometimes it's 18 hours you know it, it's about reading the the broth and letting it tell you when it's ready as opposed to trying to force it so we've talked about your three restaurants and to me they couldn't be more different in their concepts but there must be some kind of overarching food philosophy that you have that ties them all together or maybe you don't i don't know but what would you say that is if you do indeed have no, there absolutely is i mean what's really interesting is yeah we are we're, we're very different um the three restaurants look very different and feel very different um, but the one the quality of ingredients that we get um is all the same it's universal across everything uh, and secondly it's the commitment to quality um of how we prepare things so we make everything from scratch uh, you know, whether it's the ramen broth or the ramen noodles, we, we make those daily, um, our steam buns, we make, you know, make by hand, um, whether it's the sourdough that we're serving at Hillside or the baguettes we're serving at Bistro, everything's done from scratch. Um, generally we try not to do anything too complicated either. We just try to make the, the thing that we're making as good as possible rather than trying to make 20 things, maybe not quite as good. I think that's one of the most important things. If, if, any, if there's anything to learn here, it's that high-quality ingredients purport, prepared simply will always shine through in any dish that you make. Yeah, uh, you, you can't go, uh, I, we, we regularly do suppliers dinners at, at the restaurants and, and the whole point of that is pointing out we're just celebrating other people's hard work. You know, um, the work that, that farmers or, or fishermen or, or whatever it is do is what makes restaurants. Um, without that quality, we, we've got nothing. Um, it's our job to put it across in the best way possible. And, you know, we talked in, in, this, uh, in this time about celebrity chefs, but I like to say the celebrities really, the rock stars really are the farmers. They're the guys oh, yeah. who are growing it. And if they do a good job, it makes it easier on you. That's, that's it. And procurement is such a big part of, um, of being a chef. You know, you've got to understand your ingredients, where they come from, who's growing them, why they're growing them in a certain way and why that makes a difference. So, uh, Asher, let's step away from the restaurant for a moment and say on those rare occasions when you have a day off, what do you like to do in Wellington? What's your go-to thing? Uh, sleep. Sleep's a good one. Um, no, no, I mean, Wellington's a gorgeous city. Um, so just getting outside is, I've, I've got two dogs, so getting outside and going for a walk and, and foraging tends to be part of that. It's fantastic. We've got great walkways. You can walk from um, one side of the city to the other through Greenbelt, through walkways, um, which is amazing. Um, there's a, a place called Zealandia um, in Wellington, which is a predator-free sort of fenced-off um, 
big area that where native vegetation and um, birds and bits and pieces are being encouraged to flourish. Um, and you can get up close to things like Tuatara, which is a um, as closely related to dinosaurs as you're going to get anywhere on Earth that's native to New Zealand. Um, so that's pretty special. Um, we've got an amazing national museum, um, Tapapa. Uh, so Tapapa translates to our place, and it very much is that. It's a representation of New Zealand. It's not just showing things off. It tells a story as well, um, which is pretty special. And then obviously going out um, to, to cafes and restaurants and, um, and bars in Wellington. I mean, we've got such a great mix and, and the quality of what's on offer in Wellington at the moment over the last few years has been really increasing, and at the moment it's it's absolutely world-class. So, yeah, it's a pretty pretty cool city to be in. I'd say so. What what were some of your favorite places to go? Where would you go on a night out? On a night out, um, there's a, a restaurant called Rita, um, which is um, fairly recent. Um, it, it's owned by a couple who um, who owned an iconic cafe for a long time, and they decided to step away from cafe and, and open a restaurant. It's incredibly humble. Um, it's, it's just genuinely beautiful um, food there. So that's great. Um, we've got a, a wine bar called Glass, um, which is fantastic as well. Um, really special um, natural wine bar, but the, the owner, Jonathan, he knows all the winemakers. Um, so he's been a long time in France, and he imports his own wine from France, and then lots of wines from around New Zealand there as well. Um, and just delicious, really good quality food. Um, great cafes around. People's Coffee is roasted here in Wellington. It's a fair trade organic. Um, coffee brand, but they've got a couple of flagship cafes, so that's a good place for coffee. And in Wellington, I mean, one of the major things about Wellington is our craft beer scene. Um, it's it's just crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, have heard to, about the likes of Garage Project. Um, been lucky enough to be around since they started and, and really see that um, that grow. So they've got a tap room where you can try 20, 30-odd different beers, and then there's some amazing craft beer bars like Golden Spree Dive. Um, in Wellington, and then we've got a chocolate factory as well, which is which is awesome. Um, beans are chocolate, so they buy the beans from around the world and make the chocolate on site, and, and you get to taste real chocolate um, as opposed to the heavily processed, dairy infused. Um, yeah, it's not the same thing. So you you mentioned the craft brew scene, and I remember when we first came to Wellington, the first night we were there, we stumbled on. Uh, we went to Goldings, of course, which is yep. fantastic. Star Wars yeah. on all the on all the yeah. walls and everything. It's just a fun place. But we stumbled on uh, Rogan Vagabond, which yeah, was fantastic. a lot of fun. I mean, you walk in there first, you know, and I'm in my 50s, but I'm, you know, I, I lived through the punk rock era, you know, yeah. and you walk yeah. in there and you see these folks and you're like, okay, but are they going to be serious about their beer? And they are incredibly serious about their beer and they do a great job. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't survive in Wellington if you weren't serious about your beer, um, to be honest. it's The scene is that strong. But, yeah, Gwil, the owner um, of Rogan Vagabond, we actually used to do pop-ups at the ramen shop at, at Rogan Vagabond. Um, it's great. And, and that's the other thing about Wellington is how uh, much collaboration there is in the hospitality scene between, you know, it doesn't matter if it's beer, coffee, food, um, wine, everyone sort of gets together and, and supports each, each other. Oh, that's great to hear that it's so collaborative like that. Well, uh, Asher, I really appreciate the time that you've uh, spent with us today. And this is making me look forward so much more to another trip to uh, Wellington and New Zealand. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Destination Eat Drink, the podcast. Thanks again to Asher Boot. 
for making the time. What an interesting guy he is. If you're ever in Wellington, be sure to check out his restaurants. They are top notch. We drop a new show every Friday. Next week, we're on Italy's magnificent Amalfi Coast. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. See you next week. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.